What if you were offered a McDonald's game piece worth a million dollars? The whole thing might seem suspicious, but would you take it? On today's episode, we talk about McMillions. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. McMillions is a six-part series streaming on HBO. McDonald's Monopoly game gave millions of people a chance to win. But from 1989 to 2001, there were almost no legitimate million-dollar winners. The FBI told us the game pieces are being stolen. McDonald's was shocked. Conversations on the wiretap were coming in. I'm hearing the name Uncle Jerry thrown around on the phone. We started focusing more on trying to figure out who he was. He's a freaking gangster. Uncle Jerry was getting the tickets and selling them to other people. This is a million dollar winning ticket, and he's got it in a Ziploc sandwich bag that's not even zip. Somebody offers you a million dollars, you're going to take it. <laughs> Unless you got to kill somebody, then you might not, you know, you might not be interested. But... We had eight original individuals, which turned into 53. The vast majority of these winners, they're good people. One of my biggest regrets has been involved in this McDonald's thing. Yeah. I just wanted a better life, and I feel like this couldn't come to me if it wasn't meant for me. I've lost everything. This thing wrecked so many people's lives. The hook is irresistible for a certain demographic. That includes me. Growing up in Midwest suburbia, my family ate a lot of McDonald's. I'm not proud of it. I don't recommend it. But I still have an insidious nostalgia for phrases like shamrock shake and happy meal. One of the company's most successful marketing ploys was the Monopoly game. You'd collect game board pieces with the hope that if you got the right combination or an instant ticket, you could win big cash prizes. Then, in 2001, an FBI investigation revealed that the biggest winners were frauds whose game pieces had been stolen. It might have turned into a bigger story, but in 2001, it was wiped off the front page by September 11th. Over a decade later, filmmaker James Lee Hernandez started digging into the history and eventually teamed up with his co-director, Brian Lizarte. They undertook a painstaking investigation to make connections no one else had made. The mysterious figure at the heart of the scheme is known as Uncle Jerry. Eventually, the filmmakers came to learn how Uncle Jerry made the whole thing happen. Later, other reporters dug into the case, including the Daily Beast journalist Jeff Mache, who wrote a long article in 2018. But by then, the filmmakers were already deep into their own research. In McMillions, the real-life cast of characters includes Doug Matthews, the boisterous FBI agent who went undercover. So I come back, like, I'm excited, right? I got the biggest case ever, right? And Robin Colombo, the mafia wife who witnessed the whole scam from inside her home. My husband picked the winners. He had tickets. He flew everywhere. I think Oprah Jerry even may have got a little jealous. And Gloria Brown, who was conned by the mob into buying a Monopoly game piece. I mortgaged my home to get my upfront money. I had the chance to interview the two directors back in February. 
we held our conversation in front of a live audience at New York's IFC Center, back when you could do that. Joining us in this talk are two of the film's subjects who become prominent in later episodes of McMillions. The first is A.J. Glom, an ex-con with a self-deprecating sense of humor. He received stolen game pieces from Uncle Jerry to distribute to fake winners. Victor Marchitello was the third person I gave a ticket to. I met him in prison in West Virginia. Our other guest is George Chandler, who was more innocent in this scam. He received a stolen game piece from his foster father without knowing where it came from. George Chandler of Walhalla just won a million dollars in the hatch match and win game. In the course of our conversation, the filmmakers and film subjects describe how their lives were changed by the making of the series. I began by asking James Lee Hernandez how he got started on the story. It started um, way back in uh, 2012. Um, I was laying in bed just uh, flipping through Reddit before I fell asleep for the night, laughing at funny cat videos and stuff like that, and saw a, a TIL. Today I learned nobody really won the McDonald's Monopoly game. And like most kids that grew up in the 90s, I loved that game. Uh, my first job at 16 was at McDonald's. And so I tapped on it, really didn't see. There was a local Jacksonville newspaper blurb. There wasn't a ton about it. Um, dove into it for the next year or so. Really couldn't find much information about it. Put a freedom of information request in with the U.S. government. Uh, that took a little over three years to go through and then was able to reach out to the FBI agents and federal prosecutor who worked the case. They all said this was one of their favorite cases and no one's ever contacted them about it before. Uh, and uh, at that point, this is the end of summer 2017, like, I, I think this is something really big. I know Brian for a long time and so uh, I called him up and said, I, I think we got something big here. Now this is a big undertaking this series. Brian, can you talk about, you know, your work here to four and, you know, what preparation you had to, to take on this project? Well, you know, when we had that lunch that day, uh, it was very much about, you know, do we have a story that warranted pursuing a documentary? Um, both of our backgrounds are, are editorial uh, for many of years of our career. Um, I've, I've been cutting my teeth in, in editing feature documentaries and documentary series. And so uh, we started talking about the, the potential of the FBI, the potential of you know, some of the you know, quote-unquote winners. And, uh, and we weren't sure, you know, is this going to be a 90-minute documentary? Is this just a short story? Uh, how big is this? And we uh, got uh, we got to interview some of the FBI agents uh, early on and the federal prosecutor, and we had some phone calls you know, early with uh, George Chandler, even uh, with AJ, uh, both of which who at the time did not want to participate uh, and probably wished we never called them again uh, early on. But we, we knew that we wanted to tell every side of the story and that the, if we if there was the ability for everybody to participate, this would be far more than what you could actually put into a, a 90 minute documentary. And so we uh, we teamed up with unrealistic ideas, uh, which is Mark Wahlberg, Stephen Levinson, and Archie Gibbs, uh, and then we we brought it to HBO. 
and unrealistic ideas really supported us as being fairly unknown. Actually, very we were unknown directors uh, in this genre, and so having their support, having their back backing, uh, I think you know gave. Hopefully, I'm not speaking for HBO here. Uh, HBO, the confidence that we, you know, could do this and that the vision that we had for it was worth pursuing, and uh, we've been very grateful to have their support and everyone's support uh, on this project ever since. Best to my knowledge, all of mine, I believe, were fifty thousand. I mean, you go down this list. I had one, two, three, four, eight, nine, ten winners out of giving away $10 million, I made $614,000. So how stupid am I? <laughs> AG, let me bring you into this. When you get a call from filmmakers who want to open up this chapter of your history, uh, which is a illegal chapter of your history, what was thoughts went through your head about whether or not to participate in this? I really didn't have any thoughts. It, it depended on what kind of mood I was in that day. I had a lot of calls when uh, Jeff Mace's story came out. People were calling me from London, Italy, and everything, different news organizations that wanted the story. And this was a previous uh, journalistic report about the, that history. Right before uh, I met these two characters. Uh, no, then, then one day we met for lunch, and then I seen they were the real deal. They're nice guys and everything. So I said, "Why not?" Pasta is a unifying thing. You, you got some. We got some pasta, and it helped. Yeah, right. We went and had pasta, and uh, it, it was just like getting involved in the uh, thing with Jerry. It was something to do, and it was something I never did before. So I did. I know it sounds stupid, but that's the way I've been my whole life. So, AJ, you were just watching this for the first time today. What was that experience like? Seeing myself? Or seeing the whole story put together. <laughs> well, I saw the first two episodes. So, no, it's very interesting. I should probably get an Academy Award. <laughs> <laughs> Being such an idiot. <laughs> George Chandler didn't understand what he was getting into when he received a million-dollar winning piece, but his participation got him in legal trouble. Yeah, you don't know how to react because you're you're being charged with a with a federal crime. My name appears in the text of major newspapers and on major television stations all across the nation. Friends are calling me, families calling me, business acquaintances are calling me, customers are calling me, employees are calling me. I didn't know what to tell them. Well, George, let me ask you a version of that same question. When uh, the filmmakers came to you and asked you to tell this chapter of your story, what was your thought process? Uh, there were, at the time, when the Mace article published on the Daily Beast, there was a lot of interest. Um, of course, that was what, two years, so it's 17 years prior to what were the actual events. Uh, I'd already put it behind me and moved on with my life, and uh, I'm, I'm a businessman, do a lot of different things. But they were persistent, and I finally told James, if you want to talk to me, I live at, I don't think I can say the address here, but I told him, show up, and they came knocking. So, um, and I felt like they could 
tell the story, tell what you've seen so far, and then complete the story, because I never really got a chance in a public way to complete the story, which um, uh, we're not going to do a spoiler alert here, but, uh, you know, we were the lead defendants that took the government to trial on this and eventually prevailed. So, and that's important to me because I, I never committed a crime. Uh, breaking McDonald's game rules, y'all, is not a crime. Uh, even lying to them about it is not a crime. That's civil. It's not criminal, though. And it's important that America knows about that. And for, that's the heart for me of this story, okay? Um, and I think you guys did an excellent job, by the way. I am... Uh, Thank you. Come on. Yeah, I mean, really, really good uh, artfully put together. Yeah. I mean, well, just to the, one last thing, because we wanted everybody to tell their side of the story. And that was one of the things that, you know, we felt if you only heard from the FBI telling what they knew about AJ and about George, it would, it would really narrow your perspective on who they are as people. Um, it's very easy to, to read an article um, or to see just one side of things and assume, okay, you know who this person is. Uh, you'll pass judgment on them based on criminal behavior or based on the fact that you know someone was indicted. Uh, and so having them share their story, I mean, we couldn't be more grateful. Uh, and we feel that by you guys each coming, you know, not only here, but, you know, being a part of this, uh, it does humanize what you guys were going through at the time in a way that uh, no article or no perspective just from the FBI could ever do. James, when you embarked on this process, what were the mysteries that still existed? I mean, the FBI had done a full investigation. You had access to a lot of that material. There had been other reporting uh, about this. Um, but what were you and Brian still trying to crack about this case? Well, uh, at first, there were tons of gaps. I mean, the, the high-level bullet points of the general amount of time it happened, the people that were, the amount of people that were involved, and you get a general sense of, of how the scam worked. But you don't fully know all of the details. For example, the FBI, they investigate something, and this is their job, so what they're going to do is they're going to get as many facts as they need to go to trial and to make arrests and to try and get a conviction but they're not diving into the history of everyone's individual stories. Um, especially like in, in these episodes, you see the backstory of the Colombo crime family. Because of what happens with Jerry Colombo, they can't really go back into the history because that main cog of the wheel is missing. And so for us, we needed to fully paint the picture of the story and then also it was really important to us to understand the motivations behind things like knowing George and, and, and seeing Gloria Brown's story and, and AJ. And it's really easy to look at that and just think, Oh, that person's part of this conspiracy. This is a criminal. And we didn't ever look at it like that. We looked at it like these are people that are in a situation. We really want to understand the story behind all of this and not just the black and white, oh, this person did this thing, they should be guilty. Um, AJ, there's two more episodes of this story to go that I've had the opportunity to see. And in one of them, the filmmakers ask you, if you had the chance to do this all over again, would you still do it? 
and you laugh uh, and say, yes, I would. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that. Well, the first, first thing I want to say, I gave the tickets to the people. They didn't have to pay me until they got paid. There was no 50000 up front, 100000 They didn't have to mortgage their house. So that's why I had to be very careful who I gave a ticket to. Because I had a lot of friends, close friends, but they were going through divorces. They were going through this and that, so I, I couldn't give them a ticket. And the one thing I want to bring up about Michael Hoover, I don't know if it shows in the show, but that was my biggest regret, that he didn't get any money. Because we were friends 40-some years. Sean. It, would it, I do it, it again? It, it, that's come yeah. Up. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about it. Again. Yeah, we do. Because <laughs> I got nothing to do this week. <laughs> The first time I met Jerry, we looked at each other, and it was like the chemistry between us was crazy. Um, like you see in a cartoon, you know, everything like boom, boom. I was having a long-distance relationship with a federal agent who was not that fun. And um, Jerry was fun, so I chose him. Robin Colombo is such a prominent figure in this uh, whole series. Um, can you talk about getting her to participate? Robin uh, came came on board actually quite easily. Um, you know, it w she was. You know, we had one phone call with her, and she was like, she, you know, we we said two words, and forty five minutes later, she kept talking and talking. Finally, we said. All right, we'll come out and visit you. And um, it was pretty much uh, as as simple as that. She, uh, I think, you know, for her, she saw this as, you know, a, her, you know, part of her, a story that she was uh, involved in, and, uh, you know, maybe like like she's retired from I, who knows what career, but uh, she. Uh, you know, she was very forthcoming. We actually found her extremely charming and, and really loved spending time with her. When we first went out to meet with her, uh, she looked just like that, you know, in the red dress. That uh, was not our decision, by the way. She yeah. just came out of her Wearing bathroom. a red dress on a red sofa. Yes. yes. We, we walked into, uh, a friend of hers led us into her apartment, and we saw the red drapes, the red, the red couch, and she was still finishing getting ready. And then the door opens, and she's in the red dress, the red hair, like, get on that couch. We're doing this right now. Let's, this is perfect. Robin, uh, at one point in the series, says that the monopoly scam for the mafia was as lucrative as prohibition had been at, at one time. Uh, and I wonder if you, you know, feel that's true based on your research, or if you let her say that because it evokes her point of view? Well, uh, if you're not adjusting for inflation, the dollar amount might be pretty similar. But uh, it's we can almost guarantee that that is not the case. Um, but it, it was the, the sort of viewpoint to be able to see Robin's viewpoint of this entire thing. I mean, there's, there's this, uh, especially in America, there's, there's like this soft spot for the mafia. And it's almost like you want that to be true, even from her perspective of thinking like, 
they did something illegal, but they did achieve something pretty large and uh, in a lot of senses be proud of that fact and use that as like a numerical standard for how great this thing was. Dwight was very successful. He had a family, he had five kids. I became friends with his son and when I was about 12, I left home. Dwight Baker was a foster father to me for a time. Well, George and I, I mean, we, originally, we went to church together, families. So we took him in, we became foster parents with George, and uh, he grew up with our kids. You know, being in such a big family and being poor especially, why would I not want to move in with Dwight? You know, he drove a BMW and, you know, had those successful characteristics that I wanted. George, we you know, see this relationship you had with Dwight uh, as kind of foster father uh, to you. He pulled you into this with good intentions, but you know, it still became a, a very complicated thing for uh, both of your lives. Um, can you talk about what it's like to hear him tell his story in, in this series? Yeah, uh, actually it's, it was difficult because really we only began to rekindle our, our lifelong relationship when these two guys came on the scene and, and um, uh, we were able to kind of get Dwight involved. Dwight was reluctant to participate, but Honestly, it was important to me, and I and I I didn't use that I don't think in a forceful way, but I did let Dwight know that I, I thought it was important um, for him to to talk to these guys because by that time we had spent a few days together, and uh, uh, I I had a sense that they were willing to put the story uh, out there. Um, yeah, it, it was hard. Um, because I know he's been through a lot. Uh, I wish he wouldn't have put me in the spot he put me in, but at the same time, um, I didn't want to cause him any more pain. I felt, I, and I still do feel bad for him because I know that deep down he's a good person. He, he's he's uh, well-meaning, and uh, just like he said, you know, we all have a little larceny in our heart, you know, and you put uh, put somebody in the right financial circumstances or put them in the right uh, the right frame of mind and we'll, we'll do anything and, and he did and he regrets it. He's apologized to me. Uh, I have no doubt that he's sincere in that and I love him. You know, he's a, he's a good person, his whole family. They're, they're good people. Uh, he made a mistake and um, I forgive him for that. Well, you, you raise a point about the, the, the act of this filmmaking, you know, helping uh, you reconnect with Dwight in some way. When we look at documentary films, it's like they're about a story, but then the act of making them becomes part of the story of your life. Absolutely, too. yeah. It's like going to a funeral. You know, you see your deceased loved one there for the last time, and you, you have that. Uh, there, there's some closure uh, in the process of making this film. That that's a a certain fact. Is it's helped uh, a lot of the people involved. People I don't even know. I'm sure be able to tie up some of those loose ends, get some of that um, knowledge that exists that they were never privy to, 
and uh, understand better what people were dealing with. Because when you sit there and watch it on camera, uh, it puts things in a totally different and, and more enlightening perspective. James and Brian, you never had the chance to interview Uncle Jerry uh, for this series. Can you talk about your attempts to or any interactions you had? So because not everybody has seen the entire thing, we've kept that kind of murky. But um, it's, it's a really different thing from all the aspects of, of everyone involved, especially for him. I mean, um, in, in a lot of senses, there is redemption all the way around when you look at everyone that was involved and there's there's a lot of the good sometimes good people just make bad decisions and sometimes you make a decision that you don't even realize can lead to something else um and then you look at mcdonald's and the fbi and there are positives and negatives on all sides of this but for jerry really not a lot of positives uh he spawned this entire thing and you can look at it a lot of different ways and, and you can say like, okay, he did, he did commit a crime. He knowingly was doing something that was fraudulent. Um, but he also was in a very right place, right time sort of scenario. And there are a lot of people in the world, if you're totally honest with yourself, where you could think like, okay, I definitely wouldn't do that. But then there's a little twinge in your mind, like ah, maybe if I had like this exact scenario and I was thinking somebody's got to win anyway. McDonald's is a multi-billion dollar company. I'm not robbing someone at gunpoint or I don't have to murder someone. You can start to see where mentally you could make those leaps and bounds to rationalize that. One of the things that constantly crossed my mind is that my life was in danger. I had no other option but to take this process through. Robin knew all of my family and my son. I just kind of felt like I was trapped. It was no way out but to go through it. Gloria Brown, who I really think of as the soul of, of this series in uh, uh, many ways, um, can, uh, can you talk about what it was like getting her to participate? Well, it was, it was a difficult thing. Just to even get in contact with her was very difficult. Uh, because, like we'd mentioned before, this for her is, if not the worst, one of the worst things that's ever happened to her in her entire life. And to have to rehash that is just, that's not something that she would want to do. So finally, when we were able to actually contact her, uh, we we said let's let's grab some breakfast well she told us no like four or five times Pro in, yeah in advance. innumerable she said, times she, she even didn't want to meet with us she 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 yeah, she, she was very adamant about not contacting her again uh but and yeah. then we uh, we said let's get breakfast at cracker barrel and that really turned the tide um, true. and then cracker we, barrel will do that to you yeah um so then we had breakfast with her and her sister um, and at, at that point, we just explained, the, we're telling the story from all the angles. We understand the, uh, you know, we, uh, we can be as sympathetic as humanly possible without going through it, what you ha had to deal with during that time. And we want you to tell your story for yourself. Because from the FBI's perspective, 
if you just saw that video only, you just think that person's a guilty criminal. And then when we met her and she explained all the things that she talks about in this, we just said, look, people need to experience this. People need to know what you actually went through. And you made a decision and, and it, it got much worse than you could ever have imagined. And that people should know that and you can be a, a sign of strength that you didn't let this hold you down and you continue to live your life and provide for your son and, and have a life now today. I should say that uh, the filmmakers have been doing the podcast uh, along with the series. So after each episode, they devote a podcast episode to interviewing one of the uh, subjects in the film. They, the latest one uh, is an interview with Gloria Brown uh, after episode three. The, I was just listening today, and what was really interesting to me listening to that is in the podcast, um, Gloria Brown as an interview subject uh, was uh, not as loquacious as she is in the film. Maybe it's because you were doing it by phone or, or maybe it's because she w was in a different mood. Um, but in the film, she is very forthcoming, even though she's so nervous at some point, you know, I could see her shaking today, a detail I only noticed the, the second time that I was watching it. Can you talk about, you know, that interview and, and just how forthcoming she was? Well, you know, to, to James's, you know, point of meeting at Cracker Barrel and hearing her story, we, you know, we told her how important that was, you know, for people to hear it. And she had her sister there uh, with her who had not heard a lot of the details in the story. Uh, we, we think that that obviously provided her a degree of comfort. But we, we sat down with her for about five hours. Um, when, when we did the actual interview, we, yeah, not breakfast. <laughs> uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No, we, and so we, we, in that, you know, sit down, we were in her house. Uh, it, it was hopefully a comfortable environment. You know, we, our approach to this, you know, the interview is, is, very much like this, you know, very conversational. And, you know, we would just talk about little things and, and how the story unfolded. You know, in the podcast, you know, we only had a short period of time to talk about very specific things, uh, you know, with an agenda. And, you know, we, we wanted to provide some of the perspective that we couldn't include in the series. You know, so many people will watch that episode and at first see her at the very beginning and you know, almost laugh, right? Thinking that like, wow, look at, you know, she's, she's kind of making a fool of herself or you, you assume that this is someone who uh, has a you know, criminal background beyond this one moment that she participated. But when you hear her story and you realize what she was going through, it changes how you think about that, that footage in the beginning. And then when you see it again at the end and you realize, what she was going through directly from her point of view, it again has a whole different meaning. And we, we like that, that you know, symbolism in a lot of ways because we do pass judgment on people. We pass judgment on anyone who we presume is, is a criminal or was involved in criminal activity. You know, and just like George and AJ, like we, you know, these are good guys. They, you know, they made a, a foolish choice at, at one point. We all have made dumb decisions. Most of our decisions aren't 
public knowledge. Uh, and so in this case, yeah, they've had, to, they've had to deal with that. They've had to live with that. You know, Gloria's story is a, a strong one. Hearing, you know, that perspective does change how you think about the whole series. I think when an audience comes to this uh, series, it's because there's maybe a pop culture nostalgia for uh, McDonald's Monopoly game or an interest in this true crime that seems bloodless uh, and, you know, so better than other more lurid uh, true crime. But for me, the rewards of the series are other things that you're getting at. And I wonder what are the most meaningful things that you've gotten out of telling this story? Well, the biggest thing for us is, you know, people often think of this as a victimless crime, right? You're, you know, people were stealing from McDonald's. They're not hurting anybody. And, uh, and they just, you know, write it off as being something that didn't really um, affect anybody Although, you know, everyone who tried to win uh, and, and never had a chance, uh, obviously, you know, f are feeling affected by it now that we're revealing uh, that it was all a fraud. Basically just ruining all of your childhoods right. at once. You so, know, sorry. Yes, I mean, there's, there's a nostalgia to it, and we can relate to, to wanting to win. You know, everyone who played that game wanted to win. And if, fr if a friend or family member had come to you and said, hey, like, I have a chance for you to win a million dollars. All you have to do is claim this for yourself. Most people would have done it. And if people had the money and they realized, like, okay, well, long term, I'm going to get more out of this, they still probably would have done it. But the, the consequence of making that choice uh, had great effect. It had a you know, great effect on, on friendships, on you know, relationships, friends, family, uh, job opportunities, becoming a federal criminal, ha, you know, ha, is, is not something that people wear with a badge. Uh, the, f the fallout from the companies that were associated with McDonald's that had employees who relied on not only this game, but you know, every time this game got circulated, there were people who were telling us, like, we looked forward to all the overtime that we would get because, hey, there's a new game coming around. And not only did they lose the overtime, they lost their jobs. So the consequences of this one seemingly small act, uh, this supposed victimless crime that a lot of people think of this, uh, is, is really not the case. You know, there were a lot of victims beyond the American public who, well, who never had a chance to win. There were a lot of people who still to this day are affected by it. I mean, even, you know, George, uh, you know, despite what he went through and, you know, filing the appeal, he, you know, he deals with this constantly. You know, AJ, I don't know how, how you, you know, you feel about it, but I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, if you didn't have that felony conviction for McDonald's, you would prefer not to have it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> AJ, of all the things that you've been involved with, is this even like the fourth most interesting story in your life? <laughs> This is probably first, because <laughs> it, it was fun. <laughs> I want to thank the filmmakers James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte, and the film subjects A.J. Glom and George Chandler for speaking with me. 
McMillions is streaming on HBO. If you're looking for tips of other documentaries to watch this summer, look out for our documentary bingo card on Pure Nonfiction's social media pages of Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.